This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kelvy, welcome to Better Reading, or even welcome back to Better Reading. Yeah, yeah. it's been uh, six or seven years since I did the podcast. Remind me, why were you here that time? I was here promoting uh, my book, The Commando, which mm. was a biography I wrote about Cameron Baird, VCMG, who mm. was um, a second commando regiment soldier who was killed in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And as I write in my in my new memoir, that mm. was a, a very important uh, book for me in my career. It ended up being the first of three books that I wrote about the Australian Special Forces sort of getting mm. further and further away from um, the sort of Special Operations Command official mm. narrative um, mm. with my book Find, Fix, Finish sol- coming out last year. The soldier you were with was... Cameron Baird. Cameron so Baird. He, he was, was here and we recorded the podcast together. No. No, Cameron had died. Cameron had died. That's and right. And the podcast I did was with one of his best friends, Eddie Robertson, who was a, a key figure in the book. Yeah, really nice guy. I don't know if you knew this, but he contacted me a couple of days later or maybe the next day and asked me if we can – if. I could do a podcast where we interview soldiers. Yeah. He said because they didn't have a vehicle to tell their stories. Yeah. He's, he's a really thoughtful guy, Eddie. Eddie put me on to um, a book called Tribe by Sebastian Junger. Yeah. Do you know that book? Yeah. Which is sort of, it's an investigation into into PTSD but also moral injury. And, and I've recommended that book to a lot of people and um, it really got my mind thinking about um, about the ways that those guys were afflicted and... Eddie, who spoke about on the podcast the the, uh, the mental afflictions that he's mm. had post Afghanistan. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really heartfelt. Okay, let me um, introduce you. Ben is an author, journalist, and editor. Ben's books have won the Australian Independent Book Award for nonfiction, an Australian Book Industry Award, and the Nib Military History Prize. They have been shortlisted in the Victorian and Queensland Premiers Literary Awards, and for their Les Carline Literary Prize. Ben has been the editor of Mr Jones, Sports and Style and Juice magazine and worked at the Sydney Morning Herald as a senior feature writer. As a freelance writer, Ben has been embedded with the ADF in East Timor and Iraq and has worked independently in Iran, Syria and Afghanistan. Combining autobiography, reportage and science, Ben's latest book, a Scar is Also Skin, tells his personal story along with research about psychology, physiology and neuropathology. Wow. Is it timely and why now? Why now tell your story? Well, I think it's timely from a societal perspective and also from a personal perspective. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll first talk about um, the personal perspective and why it was the right time for me mm-hmm. to write my book. And that's something that I address in the prologue of the book. My father died uh, a little more than a year ago. Mm. Yeah, actually more like more like six to 18 months now. But while he was passing away, you know, he, he had cancer for a long time. He was dying slowly and then he died very quickly. I, I was stuck in Sydney because he was in Perth and this mm. was when um, 
This was when the barrier between uh, Western Australia and the rest of the eastern states existed. I was stuck there with me, my beautiful partner who I'd, who I'd only mm. met um, a couple of years earlier, and our daughter. Um, mm. My daughter Poppy was was about six months at that stage, Aww. and I was I was thinking a lot about my life and about circumstance and also about conditions for change. You know, I was mm-hmm. thinking about what makes us the people that we are. And I was thinking about my dad a lot because um, my dad was a person of a certain age and he, you know, he had grown up relatively rough. Um, mm-hmm. And there were some things that he just didn't talk about, you know, and there was some sort of emotional aspects of my dad that I just never had access to. And I was wondering about why that was and I was also thinking about what my relationship with my daughter is going to be like and, you know, just how transparent I'm going to be. Um, and I, I did think sort of fatalistically if something happened, what she what, what, I wondered what, what she would take away from, mm. from her father's life and the things that she'd heard and things like that. So I thought it was time for me to sit down and write this book that um, my publisher, Vanessa Radnidge at Hachette, who I've... Wonderful. Who I've, yeah, she's amazing. But I've, I've, done, uh, I've done a number of books with her. And the first thing that we ever considered was this book. But, you know, since we've, we've published other things and it, the time was never right for me and I contacted Vanessa and I said, okay, now is, is the time to do it. So that's it from a personal perspective, but from a, from a sort of larger perspective, I think that the reason why I wanted to do this book was I didn't just want to write about myself. I wanted to write about conditions for change because mm-hmm. I think that that's something that's a, on the zeitgeist at the moment, but B, also something that we're being investig- that, that, that we're investigating as a society through trauma and through AI. And I think there are a lot of things that were seen as natural mm-hmm. when talking about the way that people's lives change. And now they're being pathologised and they're being understood. And I thought this might be a, a good opportunity for me to investigate that because that's something that I'm interested in. And I've also spent a lot of time sort of dissembling and then reassembling people's histories in the work that I've done as a, as a, as a ghost biographer. So those were the two sort of forces mm. at play when I, when I decided mm. that I wanted to do this book. Mm. You've worked in places like Iran, Syria and Afghanistan. How much of that is empathy, life-changing, PSD? I mean, how much of that can you live with, mm. if you like? It's so confronting on so many levels. And I've never been in those situations personally, but I've read them through the news, of course. And, you know, even the most recent um, refugee boating accident that Mm. happened recently. And it changes me for a while, like, you know, trying to process that news. So to be there must be completely different and very difficult, I'd imagine. And to come back to a normal life, well, supposedly normal in those places that uh, that I've travelled to, yeah, I have been in in the safest circumstance. You know, yeah. I, I've like I write in the book. The only time I've been shot at while working was in Los Angeles. Mm. <laughs> you know, it wasn't it wasn't in Iraq or or Some in Afghanistan. Some could argue that the Americans have lodged a war on themselves. Yeah, that's right. Guns. You know, I was doing yeah. a ride along with um, yeah. with the um, Los Angeles gang enforcement team, and we got shot at. Mm. Um, so the feelings that you're talking about. Hmm. They haven't derived from um, uh, from any work that I've done internationally, but I have had those feelings, and it's um, happened when I've been working with people here in Australia, um, right. and it's working with people like Denga Dutt, who I wrote yeah. uh, Songs of War Boy with, um, and it's been working with 
soldiers, Eddie, who you spoke to mm. previously, and people that I've worked with um, while I've been doing the, the Find, Fix, Finish book. And that's something that I think uh, manifests itself as moral injury. Mm. So I think quite a lot of people that I work with have an extreme version of moral injury. Mm. And I do think that a lot of writers who feel compelled to write about these subjects have a minor version of moral injury. And that's that's something that I've investigated a little bit in regards to the Afghanistan story, because a lot of the people who've uncovered a lot of happened in a lot of what happened in Afghanistan, be it the war crime story or be it be it, be it other stories, they do seem to have had a com- a compulsion to do this. And I think it's because they feel like things have been done um, in their name, mm. you know, be they soldiers, be they journalists, mm. you know, be they people like Samantha Cromfitz, you know, mm. who was the sociologist who was commissioned to uh, to investigate the culture at the SAS, people like David McBride. I think that, that, that that's been a drive mm. and the drive has been partially because they wanted to get away from this feeling of moral injury as though something bad has happened and that they're, you know, they have been a connivance and mm-hmm. a part of it in some way. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but um, my background's Lebanese-Australian and the listeners know this because I talk about it quite mm-hmm. a lot. And my mother, who died recently as well, just over a year ago, um, has lots of siblings mm-hmm. still. She was one of nine and there's, there, a lot of them are, are still alive well and truly. Um, and they're in Lebanon. And a few years back, I took a trip. It was maybe 10 or 15 years ago now. And I went to spend time with them. And I was worried, you know, I was worried about war. Mm. (laughs) I was worried about, I mean, I could hear bombs from Mm. where we were staying. They were in North Lebanon. But what struck me the most was why me? Like, why is it that one of the siblings moved to Australia and the other stayed? But the other thing that struck me was how human it was, even in a war-torn country, all they wanted was just to live a normal life. Mm. So even when things are going pear-shaped, even when there's an explosion in Beirut, they're having their daughter's, you know, fourth birthday, you know, and they've got a birthday cake and they're all trying to get to the park. And that was a real startling observation for me because I thought people in war-torn areas just lived in fear. But no, everybody just wants to just live their lives. Mm. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And for me, the, the whole difference is, you know, and, and I'll look at what's happened to Lebanon. It's one atrocity after the other. Yet they're still, you know, posting photos on Instagram of what they're doing today. And I often think that sliding doors thing of why I'm here and why are they there? Yeah, I mean, everybody has to live their life. You know, mm. everybody has one finite, mm. special life. And you want to maximise that. Mm. And I think that, um, you know, when people have PTSD and moral injury and things like that, they do it reluctantly. Mm. And it's it's not dissimilar to the experience of being a refugee in that, you know, having worked with Dang and other refugees, some people have an assumption that um, that that refugees want something from you, mm. you know, that, that, mm. that, 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 it's, that it's a sort of... Um, a valued state or something that the the refugees should in some way feel ashamed about. 
but nobody, nobody wants to be a refugee. The last thing you'd want to be a, is Who a wants refugee. To flee you know, their like country? you, it, it's such a shock. It's such a, yeah. it's such a, um, it's such a culture shock to come to a place like Australia and mm. not understand the culture and not understand, you know, like mm. the, what what you want is normalcy and what you want is a continuation of the thing that you have seen previously, mm. and you want to be part of a continuity. This is what we all want as human mm. beings, and uh, you know, refugees and people have had PTSD and shock and things like that. People have been thrown out of that that continuity. And this is something I write about quite a lot in the book, uh, the fact that when those things do happen, exceptional things can be the byproduct of that. You know, mm-hmm. like a lot of people who, who you think are amazing and who are amazing, you know, people have done amazing things. Deng is an example that I use. Mark mm-hmm. Hunt, who I wrote a book with, who was a UFC fighter, mm-hmm. you know, he had had, he had had an instance of extreme trauma when he was a child. And I think that that almost certainly contributes to his resilience and, you know, his, mm-hmm. his amazing capabilities as a fighter. But that's not what people want. You know, what people want is a nice, quiet life that is not dissimilar to the one that their parents have had and their grandparents, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's embedded mm-hmm. in us. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what we, that's what we strive for. You know, we strive for those, for those quiet moments with our children. We strive for the birthdays. We strive mm. for the hugs, you know, mm. and from a from a, a neuropathological perspective, that's what we want also, you know, mm. we want to have that that sort of dopamine feeling, you know, that, mm. that feeling of closeness, but um, quite often circumstance doesn't allow it. Mm. All right. I want to go back to your extraordinary life, like starting, um, let's go back to the stroke. I mean, mm. that was, um, must have been such a shock at such a young age. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, the shock was something that came later on because initially when it happened, I was, as I write in the the first couple of chapters of the book, completely disconnected from any language, you know, it was an aphasic stroke, so I couldn't speak, I couldn't understand when people people talked to me. Did you know what was happening to you? No. No. No, not in the initial phase. So the Mm. initial phase, I was boxing. I was rapping along to to Mm. Tupac, you know, this song that I loved. Mm. In this boxing gym, you know, just feeling strong and powerful what, and 27? sweaty. I was 27. Was yeah. yeah, I was on a break. I was at work. And then it's almost as though the colours started bleeding. You know, that's not what happened, but it's just like all of mm. reality started mm. to change a little bit. And I couldn't understand any of the words to this rap song. And I went and had a shower and I was like, I was trying to collect my thoughts and think how strange this was, but I had the emotions, but not the words. So I couldn't. I couldn't really articulate that this was strange. I couldn't mm. articulate that I was out of place, you know. But I was just sort of on rails and I walked out of the gym and saw a friend who I trained with and he so looked at me. So you kept going? I just kept going, you know, like mm. it's it sort mm. of explained in the book how how I feel when something like that happens, you know, because there's a part of you that's just you're automatically just sort of going through your day and then there's this other sort of considered part that I don't have any access to. Mm. And so I'm just going and showering and doing my whole thing and turned to this friend of mine out, out of the gym and I wanted to say to him, you know, there's something a bit weird going on and um, I, I I tried to speak to him and it was just nothing. I just, you know, there was no words, there was no articulation, there was, I couldn't assemble a sentence or anything mm-hmm. like that. So he looked at me and he was so scared, you know, mm-hmm. I could see it in his face. He was just like, what has happened to this guy? And then I... I just shrugged, you know, I, I, like the, the emotion of this sort of say la vie feeling, mm. you know, I just had these tears. I wasn't mm. crying. I was just, there were tears because the emotion had, had, had sort of overcome me. And I shrugged and just sort of shrugged and said, 
something, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> like something. Mm-hmm. He took me to this medical center and uh, they assumed that, that, that I was on drugs um, because I just couldn't articulate mm-hmm. anything and I was sweaty and I was thin and, you mm-hmm. know, I think they were just like mm-hmm. you know, a tweaker or something like that. Yeah. And they're talking to me. And they handed me they handed me a form to fill in, you know, with Medicare details and stuff like that. And I'm just like, I don't even know which way, which yeah. which which way was up, you know, what to actually write on. And he told me later on, he's like, get him an ambulance. And they're like, well, let's just figure out what's going on. And then eventually a doctor came in and was like, oh, let's get this guy an ambulance. And they took me to hospital. And I, I write about this in the book. The moment that uh, that I did actually have this sort of feeling of of coming out of the, the aphasic moment. Um, I was lying in bed and my friends were all talking over the top of me and the doctor had come in and I didn't know this then, but they had assumed that maybe there was a viral infection in my spinal cord, you know, so that's what was affecting my brain and they were going to give me antibiotics and it was going to be okay. So my friends weren't, you know, weren't panicking in that moment. And one of them had this T-shirt and it said Vancouver and I couldn't read it, but I was just like putting the letters in my mouth and sort of rolling them over and looking at the contextual stuff because there was a, there was a, a bear on the on the on the t-shirt and snow and stuff like that and I'd just been to Canada recently and I'm just sort of like come on let's do this thing you know and eventually I said oh it's Vancouver and there was this I was like oh maybe I'm going to be okay but it took a long time for me to be able to to read and write again um mm. and uh, did it take a while for a diagnosis the diagnosis actually came I think the diagnosis came four or five days later, but it came in this very unusual way in that I think a doctor may have told me that that's mm. what they think had happened, but I hadn't picked it up. Mm. And I still in my mind had this had this um, mm. infection diagnosis. And there was a doctor that was doing the rounds with some young doctors, some student doctors, and he was talking about, you know, this is Ben and this is what's happened mm. to him and blah, blah, blah. And he's had a stroke and, you know, this is, we don't know what, what's happened and, you know, we'll try and figure it out and stuff like that. And he sort of walked away and I grabbed him and I was like, I had a stroke? And he looks at the the paperwork and he's like, yeah. Mm. I was like, okay. Mm. <laughs> Good. Hey, can we go back to those doctors? Because as you know, as we spoke before we hit record, I've just um, come out of hospital too and had a near-death experience. But anyway... <laughs> But the doctors, um, who were second to none, mm. I might add. I mean, I think our public health uh, system is fantastic. Holy agree. Oh, so great. But I, in my delirium, because they gave me some kind of opioid painkiller, of which I'd never, mm. I mean, obviously never taken a drug before, so I think it was doing to me way more it would do than it does to other people. But I started imagining, because the doctors all walk in a line of superiority. Mm. So the, the head doctor works for, walks first and there's always two or three guys or women yeah. behind him, right? So I started calling them the ducks. And so you had mother duck, you yeah. had second duck and yeah. you had middle duck and baby duck. Baby duck was my favourite. But do you know when the head duck came to see me, mother duck, I knew it because mm. he was walking in the front and he walked in and I said, oh, you must be mother duck. <laughs> Man, I got to tell you, you know who mother duck is like in, in, a, in a cardiac ward? Who? The cardiac surgeons, you know, like somebody, I had a, um, a valve replacement surgery yeah. and my, um, my surgeon was a guy called Dr. Philip Spratt, who was the head of cardiothoracic surgery in St. Vincent. So that right. is the center of excellence. Oh, and he's okay. the, you know, yeah. he's the head guy of that whole thing. And like everything else in a hospital is dependent on something else. It's like this guy mm. may come, this might happen, you know, we'll see. 
they are the agenda. You know, the surgeons mm. are the agenda. It's amazing mm. picking this stuff up when you're, when oh, you're sitting really in a, is. In a I mean, I'm telling bed, you, they it? saved my life. Yeah. I mean, you know, extraordinary, I think. And you know what else I noticed about the system, and you would know this too, is how considered everything is. Mm. Like they are talking about your case and not just yours. I'm sure they've got another 50 on the same day, but they... It's not just one person making a decision. They talk about your welfare, your well-being, where you're at. And that frustrated my family, but it gave me great confidence because then it's slower. Yeah. And I appreciated that a lot. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. You know, and th- there is there is a process of doing things. And one of the things that, um, that sort of bothered me initially was that they had given me a lumbar puncher. Oh, and, wow. um, Ouch. Yeah. But... It was seeping, the, the cerebrospinal fluid was seeping out of the wound. And so my brain was just sitting in my skull and I had this incredible headache oh. all the time. Oh. And then they gave me morphine and morphine was making me vomit. And, you yeah. know, like those things, it was making my life hell. Like my experience in hospital was so bad. And they didn't seem particularly concerned about that. And it was only later that I'm like, oh, of course, they were just trying to keep me alive. Mm. You know, like mm. the the embolic events, which ended mm. up being, there ended up being multiple embolic events, were things that could have killed me. These other things, you know, like they were an in- inconvenience, you know, I didn't feel good. Mm. You know, it's it's almost like a triage situation. They were mm. doing the right thing, mm. despite the fact that I was, you know, grumbling and bitching and moaning and talking mm. about my headaches. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was like, oh, can I go home tomorrow? Can I go home yeah. tomorrow? Yeah. And they're like, no, just settle in because yeah. you're here yeah. for a long yeah. while. That's right. Incredibly smart people as well, mm. aren't they? But, you know, equally the nurses. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So then how do you deal with something like that? What's a recovery like? Well, I, I had my stroke. And then it took me a long time to get back to work. Mm. I was working at Ralph Magazine at the time. Mm. Did they know what caused it? Uh, they they never identified fully what what no. caused it because after I had the stroke and after I recovered, you know, it took it was a long process of, of mm. learning how to how to read and write again, and mm. then going back into writing mm. features and things like that. Um, it's extraordinary. I think. Yeah. yeah. At, at age twenty seven, I didn't want to own the experience. I mm. didn't want to be the person who had brain damage. Mm. I was like, you know, I'd always identified myself as somebody who I guess I was kind of cynical and, you know, I guess mm. I was kind of like sharp and arch and I wanted mm. to, 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 to be that person still, you mm. know, which 
in retrospect, was absolutely the wrong thing to do because, mm. you know, you have an experience, your life does change and you need to accommodate around that, mm. which is not a bad thing at all. And there's people on the side saying to you, oh, just get on with it. Yeah. I, I've had gotten that in the last couple. Oh, just put it behind you. Yep. Just don't think about it. Because people are uncomfortable with, with change, especially mm. when somebody's young, mm. you know, so they want to be like, mm-hmm. you'll be back on your feet. You yeah. can get back to the things that yeah. you want to get back to before. Yeah. Whereas... I didn't actually want to get back to the things that I mm. that, that I'd done before. Which, after the stroke, I had a had a heart attack and had to have open heart surgery. And, yeah. Um, uh, and were they related? They were, but they don't necessarily. It was probably they were probably embolic events in that there was some sort of clotting issue mm-hmm. that wasn't diagnosed, and it may have had something to do with the fact that I had a bicuspid valve in my heart, which they cut out and put in the mechanical valve, and there may have been flex off the stenotic heart that mm-hmm. may have created the heart attack and the stroke, possibly. Right. When I recovered from, or while I was recovering from the heart attack, I was like, I don't want to work at, <laughs> at this magazine anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do the type of work that I've been doing previously. Mm-hmm. You know, like I might as well have a go at doing something else. And that was really the start of, of my career as an author. You know, the book sort mm-hmm. of came later. But I think I was fearful of my inabilities before I actually had real inabilities, mm. you know, before I, had, mm. I started having these these language problems after the stroke. And it's so strange to say that I became a writer after I, after I became, Absolutely. after I started having brain damage. But yeah. that's, that's, that's the case. That's what yeah. happened. The brain repairs itself, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's an amazing book about that. Um, yeah. There's a couple of amazing books about it, but uh, neuroplasticity is is the process in which our, our brain repairs itself. Mm. And the analogy that I use in the book is that so the stroke is almost as though the Sydney Harbour Bridge fall, is, is, has fallen down. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the city and you want to get to North Sydney, you can still get to North Sydney, but it's just going to be a pain in the ass, and there's mm. going to be traffic jams all the way, and you know mm. it's going to be incredibly difficult. But the, the brain slowly f- tries to find the best path to the outcomes that you want, especially in regards to language. Mm. You know, our best understanding of language is that it, it, doesn't, it isn't processed in a part of the brain. Mm. It accesses all these different parts of the brain, including memory and our understanding of, of place and an item and things like that. Those, like when you are writing about coffee, your neurological picture looks not dissimilar to when you're actually smelling or drinking coffee because in your Mm. brain, it's real. So you can reassemble that stuff after you've had brain damage, but it takes a little while. Mm. So that's that's sort of the process of of, of what happened and what happened with me. But it forced me to to write more simply. But it's a conscious attitude, isn't it? You've got to be able to think about it and do it. I think it's conscious and unconscious, but one thing that that has definitely been proven in my life is that you use it or you lose it. Mm. If I didn't try to keep reading and writing after my mm. stroke, I would, ha- I would have had s- serious language issues. Mm. But because I was forever at my desk writing and forever with a book in my hand reading, mm. that's why the process mm. was, you know, happened relatively quickly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Extraordinary. So to have suffered those two major events at a very young age, it's formative, as we know, mm. and it changes the course of your life, as we know. How have you used that 
in a way, in terms of living your life. Because, you know, with me, and it was recent and I'm a lot, a lot, lot older than 27, but people keep saying to me, oh, you know, are you going to go to a Buddhist camp and shave mm. your head and, you know, yeah. not talk for seven weeks? No, I'm not. But there's got to be change, like, you know, fundamental change about life. Yeah, I think so for sure. And it definitely, that was definitely mm. the case for me. Mm. The event that happens at the end of part one of, of this book is... Um, before I had my heart attack, I was, you know, I was having this sort of professional crisis and didn't want to be at this magazine anymore, and mm. you know, but didn't didn't really believe that I could do sort of proper journalism. Mm. But I did apply to go to Iraq with the Australian Defence Force as part of their embed program, and then after I had my surgery and I went down to, you know, I'm, I'm about 95 kilos naturally. I'm quite tall. I went down to about 75 kilos. I was very wow. thin. I was very yeah. sick. And then I got an email saying, all right, do you want to go to Iraq in a couple of weeks' time? Mm-hmm. And my assumption was that I couldn't, of course. And it was actually my surgeon who said, you know, how much would this mean to you? Mm. And I said, you know, I had been very politically motivated by the things that happened in 2003 with the invasion. Mm-hmm. I'd read a lot. I knew quite a lot. And I said, you know, I think I think this is kind of what I want to do. And he said, well, go. You know, mm. what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You, mm. you know, <laughs> the worst thing that's going to happen almost happened to you a few weeks ago anyway. <laughs> yeah. you know? Have a milkshake so, every day. And so go and do it. And it, was, it was a real key moment. Mm. But that's that's the professional side of it, but also the personal side of it. When you understand that everything is ephemeral and everything is special, mm. you know, the one thing I sort of took away, and it took me a while to learn this, is you choose what is very important in your life, mm. you know, and as somebody who was cynical through their 20s and for much of their 30s, you know, it's a defense mechanism to not choose special things. And then it's a blessing when you get a little bit older to have the privilege of being able to choose these special things, mm. you know, and that, that that's why I'm so happy just at home with my partner and my baby mm. and mm. we've got another baby coming. It's oh, like, congratulations. Yeah, cheers. Yeah. It's like... Those things are so special, even though they're not bombastic, which are the mm. things I was looking at in my 20s or 30s. But because I have decided that they're special and, you know, my family has decided that I'm special, then, you mm. know, it becomes something. It really mm. becomes something. What would be, if you were to, um, if your daughter was to say what has been the most important moment in your life outside of having her probably yeah. <laughs> and your new baby, if you reflect back, what would it be? Would it be, tell me what it be. I, I'm kind of second guessing here, but I think it's, I mean, I think, you know, it's those moments that make us change our behaviour. It's those moments that make us rethink. What is it for you? Yeah, I think there's, there's those sort of primary moments mm. where, you know, you really feel like you're not going to make it and mm. you know you you have these you have these moments of extreme concentration where you're like what is important in my life those are the primary moments but then there's these secondary moments as well which are which are born of of these events and it's one that I write about in the book my my dad was a a big personality mm. and i think that you know and this is true of, of of most boys and this was definitely true of me i took carte blanche everything that dad did as the way of doing things because mm. um, you admired him because so i admired him and, and i loved him and, mm. you know and he was my dad um mm. but i didn't recognize that some of his behaviors were a byproduct of the difficulties that he'd had as a kid mm. and that stuff probably had affected my relationship with my mum who my dad left mm-hmm. and my sister 
And this was actually just before I had the heart attack. I had uh, I was in Italy and we went to Pompeii. And me and my mum and my sister, you know, mum was on her own. She'd been left in Perth on her own. Mum was uh, Laura was living. My sister was living in in London. You know, I was in Sydney, and we'd all managed to sort of come together. And we went to Pompeii. And we just had this, Laura and I just had this monumental mm. fight about, you know, I was like, I didn't know what I was doing with my career and I felt like it, my brain was a bit all over the shop and she just split up with her boyfriend and mum just was like, why can't I have a nice moment? Why don't I deserve a nice moment? And I'm like, oh my God, I never, it never, I was like 29 and it mm. didn't even occur to me, you know, that I should be thinking about somebody else's happiness in that moment. Yeah, wow. And it's born this beautiful friendship with my with my mom and my sister and you know her kids and but I do think about that moment where it was like god you really do need to have these moments of crisis to get yourself out of your own stupid rut mm. <laughs> you know and that was me getting out of my rut in that moment mm. wow that's extraordinary actually mm. I like that a lot so you mentioned that um you have friends that that come to you for advice talk to me about a recent friend that came over Hugh that we were talking about earlier. <laughs> well, he didn't come over for, for advice. He just called when, um, this was a while ago, when he'd, he'd, had a, he'd had an incident where he had become sort of suddenly slightly aphasic. Mm. Uh, and, you know, he's a newsreader at Channel 10. And, he's wonderful. You know, it, Great one communicator. Of the, one of the most articulate people you'll <laughs> ever meet in your entire yeah. life. And we were just chatting on the phone about, um, about what had happened. And his experience had been... I guess offset to a certain extent by the fact that his uh, wife had been diagnosed with cancer as well. So they were having this this incredibly stressful period, which stress and grief, they weren't in a period of grief, but uh, grief can act as a, as a, um, a mental health disorder. And so trying to pass all this stuff out in your life is very difficult. And, you know, he was, he was sort of very, very lightly and whimsically explaining this thing that had happened to him. And I said, um, oh, I think I know why you, you've called. I think it's because you don't feel like you're back to normal, even though everybody else around you sees mm. you as having bounced back. You know, he's back reading the news. And, and he said, yeah. And I mm. said, that's, you know, that's been my life since I was 27. You know, people talk to me about you know, you seem relatively articulate. You seem to be, you know, you're writing all these books, you know, you bounce back. And I'm like, no, I never, I never did mm. fully. You know, mm. it's, mm. it's what, and this is something that, that soldiers have described sometimes about, um, mm. about their PTSD. It's the new normal. Mm. You know, you don't have to accept the fact that everything, ha- everything that's happened to you is going to be bad for you, but you do have to accept that some things in your life are going to be permanent. That's just the nature of life, mm. you know. So you lose a leg. Mm. It doesn't mean that your life's going to be worse, but it does mean the leg's not coming back, mm. you know. And it means that life as you knew it is different. Yeah, and you need to accommodate around that, mm. you know, which is which is something that I think you learn to do when you're a little bit older. You mm. know, when you're younger, you want to revert back to the norm every mm. single time. When you're a little bit older, you're like oh, no, these are the new circumstances. Mm. What's the best appropriate course of action for Mm. these new circumstances? Mm. Uh, Do you know how I... uh, Because for me, it's only been three weeks, right? And the first week, oh, I was 
You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a sork, so I cry a lot. That's my coping mechanism. <laughs> right. sounds, so, sounds healthy, actually. <laughs> do you think? I'm in the park walking my dog, crying yeah. nonstop. But what I, because I'm always trying to rationalise things in my head, yeah. and I'm like, okay, well, how am I going to deal with this? One, I was lucky. Two, you survived it. Three, this, that's it. Move on. But what I decided was my coping mechanism was that I had to live a life now I had to have memories now that were fresh, fresher than that memory. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And so you don't so, dwell in that moment endlessly. That's what I was doing. Yeah. Because that was my only experience in week one, yeah. right? I couldn't just get it out of my mind. But then I decided if I'm going to get better, I need to bring in the things that used to make me happy, mm-hmm. you know. I'm not allowed to swim yet. I'm not allowed to box because I'm a boxer as well. Yep. Probably nowhere near as good as you. But anyway, can't box, can't swim for six weeks. Yeah. They're two things that make me very, very happy. So I had to find something else. Yeah. And I started every day introducing an activity that I quite liked or seeing friends that I quite liked or going, you know, to actually build the memories and try and for it not to be um, as dramatic as it was. It's, it's always going to be there, but yeah. I just didn't want it to be that fresh. But I mean, that is, that is the heart of resilience, isn't it? Is really? It? When you've had this circumstance change you, yeah. you have these things that you love, mm. it is an opportunity for you. So mm. previously you could just be like, I just love swimming and boxing. Yeah. But now it gives you an opportunity to say, okay, what about swimming and boxing? What about that makes me happy? Mm. And then you can break that down to the base level and apply that to something new. I mean, that is what mm. resilience is. You know, there's, mm. there is always an opportunity, you know, where there's life, there's hope mm. to mm. express your energy, your life, your love mm. somewhere, mm. you know, and now this is, this is just a new, mm. a new opportunity to do that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And it is a mindset. You really have to think about it and you really have to do it. Yeah. And I think often that's the moment, you know, when you click and some people don't have that switch yeah. and they need more help and, you know, and I completely understand that. But, you know, for me, I've always been able to turn things around. This one was hard. Yeah. But I think that, that, that I was on track to do so. Okay, back to you. Like, just quickly, though, just, just oh, to, sure. to close the circuit with that. <laughs> there is almost a, like this nuclear-powered industry around, around resilience and around mm. turning things around and mm. mindset. And, you know, mm. like I think the, the most extreme examples of that these days are, you know, Jordan Peterson and Andrew mm-hmm. Tate and, yeah. you know, that sort of yeah. stuff. But they're sort of forgetting the fact that you cannot – choose the experiences that you have had previously. Your no. memories are your experience, are your memories. Mm-hmm. What's happened to you is you, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. you can, you can, things still move slowly, even though, mm-hmm. you know, we we're talking earlier about, um, about swimming and boxing. What do I love about that? I can apply it to something else. Mm-hmm. You can't just be a different person. <laughs> Life mm-hmm. does not work that way. Mm-hmm. So you cannot ignore and forget who you had been previously when mm-hmm. something extreme mm-hmm. happens to you. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you totally, Ben. And I also think for me too, I have to own what happened, yeah. you know, and that's been a processing Um, You know, I have to, every time I think about it now, I'm trying not to cry about it. You know, like they're my little coping mechanisms. But I'm not trying to forget it. It happened and it was awful, you know. Now, when I I, I talk to people that have written their life story, I liken it to writing a resume or a CV or something. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, not that I've written a CV recently, but my last memory of it was once I put it on paper, I was like, oh, wow, is that me? <laughs> Did I do all of those things? Did you feel that about writing? Well, not really writing because your story? Uh, 
it, this book was kind of aimless for a little while. Was it? I mean, I overwrote this book by, I think I ended up writing about 140,000 words and then paring it down to about 62 or 63,000 mm. words. And I had always wanted the book to be a relatively brief book because I think some people, you know, like Keith Richards' Tome, you know, My Life, I mm. read recently. I love that book. Mm. It 100% deserves just a lot of anecdotes about mm. Keith Richards. At the end, you may have a sense of who he is, mm. you know, but in the meantime, you've you've had this sort of rollicking uh, mm. journey through the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, you know. Mm. And being entertained. The whole thing, yeah, yeah. It's great. I was like, that's not, that's not my story and that's not my life. And then also, that's not what I'm good at as a writer. Mm. You know, as somebody who's written a lot of ghost-written biographies, I was like, what is the process that I use to, to explain that person's life? And I said, well, there's, there's a point, you know. There is something that makes them exceptional and we get further, we get closer and closer and closer to them being able to manifest that exceptionality and then, you know, mm. they, they do that thing mm. that, that's exceptional. And I was like, well, I kind of want to do that with my book, but I didn't necessarily know what it was. Mm. Um, and then the book ended up being about about connection. You know, um, I got a, a, a lovely quote from Johan Hari, who, mm. who put on the cover of the book. And he I've says, spoken yeah, to him book. so many times. He's amazing. Oh, and He's so just funny. incredible dude and such a mesh. So but it, it took the writing of the book to figure out what the book was, mm. more so than anything else that I'd done previously. Mm. And I actually hope the book doesn't read like a CV because when I'm a reader, that's not what I want. Mm. Like I don't want to say, look at all the amazing things I did. You know, mm. look at look at these incredible circumstances mm. I've been in. I want the reader to say, this is what it felt like for me as a human being and this is what I've taken away from that. And, you know, like I hope that's, that's what happens with my book. Mm. And here I am now. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I've watched um, The Last Daughter, the film the other day, you know, the book, the books, I think it's just on... It's just out now. But it was about um, an Indigenous woman, Brenda, who was taken from her home when she was mm. three. And then she was placed in the in the care of a, of a white family. And then she went back to her Indigenous family. And then she went back and she only had memories of, of her white family, you know, and she didn't mm. really know who they were, so she wanted to go back and find them. And the documentary was so good because it was so caring in regards to Brenda's mother, but also you know, this, this white family to look after. And I was like, you know, the, the goal of so much literature and so many of the biographies that I've done are just, I am a human. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's it. Mm. That's it. I, you're a human and I'm a human and these are the places where we meet, regardless of your circumstance and regardless mm. of who you are. And it, it just had such humanity in that film. Mm. And I was like, God, what a, what a, you know, what a, what a great mission for art. You know, just to I articulate seen it, the but fact I'm going that, to see that. Yeah, see, it's awesome. Oh, absolutely. It's awesome. Um, ben, we're out of time. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed our chat. That was a pleasure. Much. It was a real pleasure. And great Thank to see you. you so healthy and bright-eyed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, 
join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.